0: We continue in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome this morning. And uh, today in our study, it's almost like a red letter day because we finally get to turn a page for the first time in several months. We are going to take up exactly where we left off last week in verse 29 of Romans 9. And this morning we're going to start at Romans 9 verse 30. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, you'll see that at the very top of page 946. As we saw last week in verses 24 through 29, Paul makes the case that God's grace in the gospel is for all people. In his context, he underscores this by saying it is for Jews and Gentiles, all the people of the world. Now that's always been the case. Even the Old Testament makes that clear, that God was never only interested just in the Israelites, just in the Jews. But in order to especially make this point with his fellow Jews, Paul appeals to the Old Testament. And so he quotes prophets in order to buttress his point that the gospel is for the whole world. In verses 25 and 26 of Romans 9, as we saw last week, he quotes the prophet Hosea to show how Gentiles are included in God's gracious saving purposes. And then in verses 27, 28, and 29, he quotes the prophet Isaiah to show that Jews also are included, but that the salvation that the Jews receive from God, they receive in exactly the same way as the Gentiles do. They receive it not because they're Jews, but because God is a God who's full of grace. God saves people not because of who their parents are, not because of what families they are born into, or what their ethnicity is, salvation comes by grace through faith, not through bloodlines. Well, today we pick up Paul's argument as he continues in verse 30 of Romans chapter 9. Our text is Romans 9 verse 30, and we're going to go all the way down through chapter 10 verse 4. And as we will see in these verses, Paul begins to elaborate even further why so many Gentiles who had none of the religious advantages of the Jews have attained salvation, while so many Jews who had all of those advantages failed to receive God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Now his explanation goes beyond the verses that we're going to consider This morning. So, God willing, next Sunday we'll come back and complete uh, this part of his argument by looking at the second part of his explanation. So, before I read the text, let me just show you an outline of Paul's reasoning. So, if you get these verses in front of you, starting Romans 9, verse 30, I want to walk you through the way that he structures his argument. In verses 30, 30 and 31, he simply states it. He contrasts the way that the Gentiles pursued salvation. Versus the way that the Jews did. And then in verse 32, all the way down through chapter 10, verse 4, he shows why the way that the Jews pursued salvation fails. And then beginning in verse 5 of chapter 10, down through verse 13, he shows why the way of the Gentiles actually succeeded. Why the way that they pursued righteousness resulted in their having attained it. So today we're going to look at verses 30 from chapter 9 down through verse 10 or verse 4 of chapter 10 and consider primarily the wrong way to seek salvation. So follow along as I begin reading in Romans chapter 9 verse 30. Hear the word of the Lord. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it that a right that is a righteousness that is by faith can only be attained by faith in Jesus Christ. And it cannot be attained by works. That's the argument. That's the point that Paul elaborates in these verses and then the following verses down through verse 13 in chapter 10. So let's look at them together. In verses 30 and 31, Paul teaches us that God does indeed require righteousness for salvation. Now, he doesn't come out and just say it that way. This is something that is inherent to his argument. Previously, in chapter 9, Paul has referred to being made right with God in various terms. He's described it as being called by God, if you'll see that in verse 24, and being saved in verse 28, and as he will refer to it again in verse 1 of chapter 10. But now, he speaks of being made right before God in terms of righteousness. And it's appropriate that he should do so. If you've been here for the study of Romans or if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know that righteousness is at the very heart of the gospel of God's grace that Paul is propounding in this letter. In fact, when he announces the theme of the letter back in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he does so in terms of righteousness. why don't you turn back there and just look at Romans 1, Verses 16 and 17, because here he announces the theme and then he's going to start elaborating the theme all the way down through the end of chapter 11. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, this is what Paul says about the theme that he's going to address. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then listen to what he says about the gospel. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And immediately in verse 18 of Romans 1, he starts launching into an exposition of sin. Because our problem is sin. Our need is righteousness. And Paul says, I've got great news. This gospel, this message is a message that reveals righteousness. The righteousness we don't have. The righteousness we must have if we're going to find acceptance with God. And the good news is this righteousness that God requires, He supplies. It's His gift in and through Jesus Christ. Now Paul elaborates this point of righteousness being necessary for us and provided to us in the gospel in chapters 3, 4, and 5. So if you look at verse 10 of chapter 3, for example, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's our problem. God requires it. Nobody has it. You don't have it by nature. I don't have it by nature. Billy Graham didn't have it by nature. Mother Teresa didn't have it by nature. Nobody. There's none righteous. No, not one. We go down just a few verses to verse 20 of chapter 3. Paul says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, that is, declared righteous, accepted as righteous by God. No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. By works of the law, what he means is everything that we try to do to be good enough for God. All those things that we know are right and good, and so we give ourselves to them, and we think that, you know, if I do this, if I do this, it'll be good enough. God will accept me. In verse 21 of Romans 3, look at this. Here he gives the answer in one of the most important sections in all the Bible. But now, your effort to attain righteousness by your own works, not good enough. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This is, Paul said, I'm not making this up. This comes straight out of the Old Testament scriptures. I'm just showing you what was always there that now we see in a clearer light because the Messiah has come. Jesus has actually done everything the law and prophets pointed toward. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. There it is. For there's no distinction for all who sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. What's that mean? Declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then he describes How Christ has attained righteousness for us, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This is to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the setup. God creates us in his image. He requires us to be righteous. We have sinned and lost our righteousness. And yet God doesn't change his standards. God doesn't say, oh, okay, I'm going to lower it so that now you can meet it. He says, no, you still got to be righteous. But we can't be right. There's no hope for us to attain righteousness. And God sends his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. The son of God becomes a real man like you and me, flesh and blood. And he earns righteousness. He obeys God's commandments. And then he lays down his life on the cross as if he were a sinner in order to pay for our unrighteousness. And Paul says, well, who's this good news for? For everyone who believes. For all who trust Christ, all who believe this message of good news, this gospel, and renounce sin and entrust themselves to him. We cannot provide the righteousness that God requires. The good news of the gospel is that what God requires of us, he provides to us. And he does it by way of a gift. He does it freely out of grace, and he does it in the life and death of his son. This is what Paul means back in our text in verse 30. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. The righteousness we need that God gives is received only by faith. You can't earn it. You can't attain it through your own efforts. Because it is only found in the efforts of Jesus Christ. It's his works. Not ours. What's precisely at this point that most of the Jews stumbled, they missed it. And Paul makes this crystal clear in verse 31. He says, Israel pursued righteousness in a wrong way. And as a result, they did not attain it. Now it's interesting to look at the verbs that Paul uses here, pursue and attain. These verbs come from the world of athletics. Specifically, they come from the world of racing. And so to pursue was to set your mind on a goal, a finish line, an accomplishment, a championship, and to go after it. And to attain it is to actually win, to actually cross the finish line, to be the one who wins the race. Israel's pursuit of a law that would lead to righteousness, as he puts it in verse 31, failed, it didn't succeed. It didn't bring to them that which they were hoping to attain. Now, up to this point in his argument in Romans chapter 9, you remember in verse 6, he said, it's not as if the word of God has failed. You know, He he wants to prove that God's word throughout the Old Testament scriptures has not fallen to the ground unfulfilled. But up to this point, he has been emphasizing the way the Old Testament should rightly be understood to show that, no, God's promises never fail. But... And in that argument, he's been emphasizing the sovereignty of God. You remember back in those verses uh, 7 through 13, 14, and then on beyond, he says that God chose Jacob, not Esau. Why? So that his purpose in election might stand. And whenever he anticipates the objection. But, what, but, but, but who can resist his will? But how can he still hold us accountable? He says he's God. He's the creator. He has rights over all his creation. And we do not have the right to talk back to him. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy because he is the one who created us as a potter. Molds clay so God can do what he wants to with us. So from that emphasis on God's sovereignty, Paul now begins to shift his emphasis to human responsibility. The righteousness that we need is something that we must pursue. It's something we must attain. We must grasp it. Now, notice that he doesn't engage in the kind of philosophical speculation that we might enjoy trying to engage ourselves to demonstrate how God's absolute sovereignty and our complete responsibility are harmonious, that they fit together exactly in these ways. He doesn't do that. What he does is says, God's absolutely sovereign, you're absolutely responsible and it's revealed and so we've got to believe both of those truths we've got to do it at the same time. and If that gives you a brain cramp, well, that's okay. You've got a little pea brain, right? We're talking about God and our brains are stained by sin so we shouldn't be undone in the fact that we can't comprehend fully some of the things that are revealed to us in Scripture. This is precisely what the Jews failed to do they did not attain that which they were trying to pursue and Paul explains the reason why beginning in verse 32 all the way down through verse 4 of chapter 10 why didn't the Jews attain that righteousness well Paul asks the question himself why why and then he begins to give us Three answers to the question. Here's why the Jews did not attain the righteousness that they pursued. First, they did not seek righteousness by faith. You see that in verse 32? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, it's interesting to know that Paul doesn't criticize the Jews for seeking to attain righteousness. He doesn't tell them, look, don't you know God's sovereign? You should just sit down and wait and see if it happens to you. He doesn't do that. That's not the concern. The concern is the way that they pursued righteousness. They had an awareness that the law described the righteousness that God requires. And that's right in a sense because God's law does call for, it demands complete righteousness. In the Old Testament, after God revealed His law to Moses, we see this type of emphasis time and again. Do this. Do this and live. Do this and live. The idea being that the righteousness that the law reveals, that God requires, must be attained if you're going to live before God, if you're going to be justified. The moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, shows us what God requires. It encapsulates for us what true righteousness consists of. However, for the most part, the Jews misunderstood the nature of that righteousness that is revealed in the law. They thought it was something attainable by their own efforts. They thought it was something that yes, they must pursue and in their pursuit, they must have it And they failed to see the law in its strictness and spirituality. They reduced the demands of the law to something that they convinced themselves they could and in fact did attain. We see this in the Pharisees in the New Testament as Jesus repeatedly upbraids them for their self-righteousness. For righteousness that they themselves in their own efforts attained. This is why Jesus taught what he did in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. You heard Don read it earlier. You have heard that it was said, do not murder. But I say to you, don't have anger in your heart toward your brother. But I say to you, what's Jesus doing? Is he giving a new law? No. He's uncaging the law that the scribes and Pharisees had tried to box up and reduce down to something that was manageable. They domesticated the law. They made it attainable. And then they deceived themselves into thinking that they actually did attain it. What Jesus is doing is showing us the strictness and the spirituality of God's law, this righteousness that we must have in order to be made right with Him. And Jesus does it in a way as does Paul, to show that they should have understood this because it is embedded in the Old Testament Scriptures as well. The righteousness that God requires is not merely external compliance to a code of conduct, but it is a righteousness that requires internal conformity to God's will. The righteousness that God requires of us is not just something that we do. It doesn't just concern your feet and your hands. It concerns your head and your heart, your thoughts, your inclinations, your desires, your attitudes. This kind of conformity to God's law must be complete. Not intermittent. Not good on Tuesday, bad on Wednesday. Not good 23 hours of the day and bad one hour of the day. It must be complete all the time. In short, as Jesus put it in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the righteousness that God requires of us. Can you attain that? Can you be good enough for God? Can you deliver this standard by your own efforts? No, you can't. Now, you can either admit that before God, that by nature, through your own efforts, you're unrighteous, or you can try to live in self-deceptive ways like the Jews did. And they did it by redefining righteousness. They dumbed it down so that it was something that they could attain. Now imagine if God required of you in order to be accepted by him that you run 100 yards in under five seconds. Okay? That's what it will take for you to be right with God. You know the world record on the 100-yard dash, 9.06 seconds. So I feel pretty safe in saying nobody here could do 100 yards in five seconds, right? Well, the Jews look at that. They say, okay, all right, this is what we got to do. This is what we got to do. We got to do it under five seconds. And what they began to do is, you know what? You know what? I think God requires, I don't think it's really 300 feet. I think it's 30 feet. Yeah, 30 feet. That's what 100 yards is. And so they reduced the standard to something manageable. And they said, now watch me. Watch me. I'm going to run this 100 yards in under five seconds. You know. I might be able to do that. If it got down to maybe 10 feet, I could probably do that in five seconds. But they made it manageable, and then they did it, and they said, yes, we've done this. Look at what we've done. But do you see what's going on there? Have they run 100 yards in under five seconds? No. No. They've deceived themselves. They've failed to understand what constitutes the righteousness that is Required. This is Paul's point in verse 32. They did not pursue righteousness in the proper way because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They didn't realize what God was doing in giving the law to sinners. They didn't realize that the law condemns, the law shows it's impossible, and therefore they need something that they themselves can't produce. They just... Kind of changed the standard, watered it down and said, look, look, we're meeting it. We're good. We're righteous. Thank you. I'm not like that guy over there who's unrighteous. Look what I do. Well, these are two sides of the same coin of their mistake, not pursuing by faith, pursuing by works. The righteousness that God requires, that's revealed in his law, cannot be attained by our own human efforts, by works. It can only be attained by faith. And brothers and sisters, this is massively important. And here's what the Jews missed. The law of God was never given as a ladder by which sinners could climb up into the good graces of God. No. Not because the law doesn't truly reveal the righteousness that God requires but because sin has rendered us incapable of meeting the demands of that law. The law was given to sinners not as a ladder to climb, but as a mirror to look into. And when you look at the law of God honestly facing up to what it requires and let it reveal to you how far short you fall of those requirements, It's a shattering reality you cannot help but say i'm undone i can't deliver what god requires there's no salvation without that requirement being met and i cannot meet it all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god there's none righteous no not one all of our efforts to attain righteousness on our own, to be good enough for God, Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, are like filthy rags in his sight. I love that song we sometimes sing. When I measure my heart by your holy decrees, all my motives and deeds I despise. I realize my best motives, my best efforts are stained with sin the israelites misunderstanding led to wrong living and this is an inevitable relationship which is why we must always seek to know the truth jesus said you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free truth is the proper foundation on which to build your life and here's the truth that paul is explaining in the first part of verse 32 The righteousness that God requires that is revealed in his law and that you desperately need cannot be attained by your own efforts. It can only be attained by faith, specifically by faith in God's provision. Do you believe that? Do you believe? I mean, has that landed on you? If not, then I would just plead with you to be honest. Go to the Ten Commandments today. Read through the Ten Commandments prayerfully. Ask God to show you what he's requiring in those commandments. Then go to Matthew chapter 5 and begin reading the Sermon on the Mount through chapter 8 and see how Jesus explains the requirement of righteousness and what righteousness looks like in his kingdom. And as you do that, you cannot help but recognize that what God requires of us, we cannot deliver. Until you come to see this about yourself, you'll never be in a position to attain the righteousness that you need in the way that God's provided it. You'll never come to seek righteousness by faith, by trusting. So that's the first answer that Paul gives to the question, why didn't the Jews attain the righteousness that God requires? They didn't have faith. The next answer, the second one, is found in the latter part of verse 32 and also verse 33. They stumbled over Christ. They didn't have faith. They stumbled over Christ. Look at the last part of verse 32, that last sentence. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Christ is compared to a stumbling stone, a stumbling stone. The language that Paul uses here." It's a picture of a large stone. It's significant. It's noticeable. And it's placed in a path so that those who try to run around it are going to stumble over it. They're going to be knocked off course because of it. And that's exactly what the Jews did. They stumbled over Christ. They missed their Messiah. They missed Jesus Christ. Paul again quotes Isaiah to prove his point. And he's showing that these things were revealed in the Old Covenant Scriptures. What he does is he combines two passages out of the prophet Isaiah's prophecies, Isaiah 8.14 and Isaiah 28.16, and he brings them together in order to show how they demonstrate the point that he's making. Now, let me read to you Isaiah 8.14 and then 28.16. Isaiah 8.14 says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. That's Messiah. That's Messiah. And then Isaiah 28, 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Do You see that the precious cornerstone is the rock of stumbling for the Jews. Jesus Christ is that stone. He's the foundation on which we must build our lives to know that we're right with God. And we do that by faith. We do that by receiving Him as God's Savior for sinners. Peter makes the same point. As Paul does by appealing to the same verses in Isaiah. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, we actually have an excellent commentary by Peter on what Paul is writing here in our text. Peter encourages all of us to come to Jesus Christ as the living stone on which we must build our lives. And then he says in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, for it stands in Scripture: Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, and then he quotes Psalm 18, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and then he goes back to Isaiah, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because he says they do not obey the word as they were destined to do. I like the way that R.C. Sproul explains this point. He writes, with the appearance of Jesus, it was clear that there was only one way to get to heaven, namely by exercising faith in Christ alone. That's what his contemporaries could not handle because he was saying to them, your works are not pure enough to merit entry into the kingdom of God. That infuriated them because the doctrine of justification by faith alone is a violent assault upon human pride. Instead of allowing Jesus to lift them up, they tripped over him. The doctrine of justification by faith alone is a violent assault on human pride. So I just want to ask you something. Has your pride been violently assaulted by the gospel? Have you understood what God says in his word in a way that you realize You cannot measure up to what God requires. It's the truth. And until you come to know that and experience that, you will never pursue the righteousness that he provides in Christ. It can only be attained by believing him. Until you come to see that the righteousness that you owe to God has only ever been attained in one place by one man and that he alone is your hope, then you'll just keep on living in your own deluded way of thinking that your self-righteousness will be good enough for him. What God requires, what we need, is found only in Jesus Christ. Do you recognize that? Do you believe that? If you really believe that, build your life on that. It's not by our doing. It's by trusting Him. And there's some of you here this morning. I'm so glad you're here. But you've never come to a place where you have said, yes, that's true. Christ, I need you. And the appeal to you today is from the Word of God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Trust Christ. You don't have to turn over a new leaf. You don't have to clean up your act. Where you are, as you are, trust Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God. The moment you do trust Him, His righteousness is credited to your account and your sins are credited to His account and He has paid His account in full already on the cross. When you trust Jesus Christ, You are looking to Him as the foundation of your relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, we must never forget that Christ is our righteousness. Don't fall back into patterns of trusting yourself. Keep trusting Him. God accepts you on your best day and your worst day for Christ's sake. So, why didn't the Jews attain the righteousness that God requires first? Because they didn't have faith. Secondly, because they stumbled over Christ. The third reason is found in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10. Their zeal for God is not based on truth. So Paul just says it again, what he's already said at the beginning of chapter 9. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He desperately wants his fellow Jews to come to know Jesus Christ. He is confident of their good intentions. Their zeal in verse 2. You see that? For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they're seriously religious. They're not just playing games here. They're staking their life on this pursuit of righteousness that they believe will cause God to accept them. In some sense, they want God to accept them. But they're ignorant of the spiritual truth and realities necessary to see in order to pursue righteousness in the wrong way. Their zeal is not based on truth. Doctrine matters. This is why we're told to watch our lives and our doctrine carefully, because it matters. As a result of their ignorance, they misunderstand the true nature of righteousness, and consequently, they miss God's provision of that righteousness. Look at verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The righteousness of God and God's righteousness in that verse refer to the perfect righteousness that God provides in Jesus. And because they missed that provision in Christ, they tried to establish their own righteousness. How? By being good. By doing right things. You see this. If you're going to be accepted by God, if you're going to receive the righteousness that you desperately need and be justified, you must confess that you cannot do it on your own. You can't be good enough for him. You must come humbly to him and bow to Jesus Christ as Lord and receive him and the provision he has made for sinners by his life and his death and his resurrection. Is that your testimony? If it's not, it can be. It can be your testimony today. You can walk out this room differently than you walked in by confessing your sin and bowing to Christ and saying, Christ, be my righteousness and receiving him as God's provision for salvation. The Jews missed the provision of salvation in Jesus. Look at verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law righteousness to everyone who believes they did not recognize who jesus is they didn't comprehend what he had done they had no sense of why that mattered or should matter to them consequently they pursued righteousness in the wrong way christ paul says is the end of the law the righteousness that the law reveals is embodied in jesus christ He fulfilled the law. By doing so, he earned human righteousness. The only way for a sinner to satisfy the law's demands is to quit trying and to start resting. Start trusting Christ. Build your life on him as the chief cornerstone. You notice how Paul says it? To everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. That's exactly who Jesus is for. He's for believers. When you trust Christ, your life is engrafted into His. His life becomes yours. His righteousness is credited to you. That's why Paul can say what he does in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. God does not condemn those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He condemned His Son and He condemned those who believe in His Son in Christ on the cross. And your sin is taken away forever. It's amazing. It's incredible what God's done for us in Christ. Are you sure there's no condemnation for you? You can be. You can be. By looking to Christ. Trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine that Paul is teaching here, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the most liberating truth that I know. It is the most amazing revelation that's given to us in the Scripture. It is the heart of the good news. To see it, to believe it, to remember it, to rest solely on Christ because of it, is to live your life with joy and contentment and hope no matter what happens to you, no matter what your circumstances are. John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress had this pressed home to his conscience one day after he had become a Christian, but he was struggling with this understanding of not being condemned. And he, he describes it in his autobiography. He says one day he was walking through a field, struggling with these questions. And Listen to where he puts it. Suddenly, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. At that moment, he says with his eyes, the eyes of his soul, he saw Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, is my righteousness, so that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He needs righteousness. For it, my righteousness was just before Him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself the same yesterday today forever brothers and sisters as you trust Christ you can be sure your perfect righteousness is there at God's right hand he accepts you for Christ's sake on your best day you need that righteousness on your worst day you're not beyond that righteousness because your righteousness is in Christ. So trust Christ. Rest in Him. Because you can be sure when you do that before God, you are having offered up in your behalf righteousness. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You. It's beyond What we could let ourselves imagine and we would dare not believe it if if you hadn't revealed it. But we thank you for this incredible good news. Lord, we we desire. For others to believe this, we desire for this amazing grace to come. And to awaken hearts and minds, we want our children to see this, we want our children to look to Christ and live, we want our loved ones to quit trying to be good enough for God, but to look to Christ who is good enough. We, we want our neighbors and coworkers and others to know what it is to be accepted by their creator. And I ask that you would help those of us to whom you've taught this gospel to be good stewards of it. And help us, Lord, never to revert back into thinking that it's our own efforts that warrant your acceptance. Oh, help us to be so overwhelmed and satisfied with Christ that with Bunyan we can say, in heaven, there's my righteousness. It's always before God. Do these things for us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.